0: Ezra 3, starting at verse 8. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work they appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hadavia, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests, in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, "'He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever.'" And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away.
1: The book of Ezra is a remarkable account of part of the story of the Old Testament people of God, Israel. And he locates himself and his story in a profoundly important season. It's a moment of consecration, not of a building, but of a group of hearts. And I want to talk to you about it this morning for three or four hours. I'm only kidding. That'll only be two hours. <laughs> Yesterday we dedicated the building. Today I want you to dedicate your heart.
2: You were worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. Sing it with me. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things and to you are all things you deserve the glory. Sing it again if you know a harmony. Sing it out. You are worthy of it all. Fill the room with your voice. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things and to you are all things you deserve the glory. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all for from you are all things and to you are all things you deserve the glory
1: lord this isn't about a rising political address Make these moments moments of consecration. Dig into our souls by the power of your spirit and release something in us that we were not even aware was there. For the glory of your name. Amen. Ezra's story is one of the most profoundly important in Judaism. Not only does he put his name to this book, but he's almost certainly the redactor, the editor, or even the writer of both 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and possibly 1 and 2 Chronicles. He is almost definitely the Jewish scribe that was responsible for putting together the Old Testament canon, as we understand it, and passing it on. His chief responsibility was as a leading Levitical priest who had existed and lived in captivity, being given the task of going back to Jerusalem to begin to redefine or to define what post-exilic faith looked like for the community. That sounds very grand. What it means is he returned to a disparate people who had left everything in their captivity in Babylon to return back to Jerusalem and needed some guidance about what it meant to be the people of God. Let me put it a different way from the Psalms. The people of God were saying, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? When they were in Babylon, they had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, and now they found themselves trying to work out what it meant to look faithful in a new context. The first half of his book is actually not about him. It's about what happened about a hundred years before he came on the scene. We don't quite know when he was born. Some people argue that he was late fifth um, century, early late sixth century, early fifth century, so about 490 BC down to about 410, something like that. Um, there's a section in chapter eight that refers to a king called Ahasuerus. Um, there were two of them, Artaxerxes. There were two of them, and uh, we're not sure whether he returned down to the reign of the first one or the second one. If he returned under the first one, then he arrived back in Jerusalem about 458 BC. If he returned under the second one, he arrived around 397 BC. In some ways, it doesn't really matter. But what we do discover is this the Old Testament story is one in which the people of God were a stop start people, a bit like me. Called to follow God, they followed him with all their heart, then they stopped, then they followed, then they stopped, then they followed, then they stopped, then they followed. I'm sure none of you are like that. The water here in Hampshire makes sure that you're all always faithful. And they had been called by God to pursue him. They'd been taken around 722 BC, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, without going into all the detail because you'll be bored, had gone into captivity under the empire of the Assyrians 115 years later. In 606 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, under three different deportations, were taken from their homeland in Jerusalem into modern-day Iraq or Iran, which became part of the Babylonian Empire. One of the young men that was taken in the second deportation in 595 was a young man called Daniel. But as they were being taken into captivity in 606, this uh, rump of a community, the the bottom two tribes of the uh, kingdom of Israel, always believed that God would not let that happen. They'd seen what had happened to the other ten tribes, but it wouldn't happen to them because they were the really faithful ones. They were the ones that God really loved. He loved them more than he loved anybody else. And bad Israel in the north, well, they deserved to go into captivity, but good Israel in the south, they were, they were different. God would never let them go into captivity. He'd never let them face difficulty. They would never be extinct. They would never be drawn away from their homeland, except they were. Jeremiah wrote about it, which I mentioned yesterday. And as they were drawn into captivity, God told Jeremiah to tell them that they would be in captivity. Are you all right? Yeah. Great. Um, he would be, they would be in captivity for 70 years. He told them that in Jeremiah 29, 7. I'm just jealous of your beard. Um, around five four one. Young Daniel had become quite a prominent leader in um, the southern kingdom. He had become a Persian, uh, he'd become a Babylonian figure, actually. Um, he spoke Babylonian, he had a Babylonian name, but he didn't live like a Babylonian, he lived like a Jew, and he got into trouble for that. But he was praying, and he read the letter from Jeremiah that I read a bit of to you yesterday, and it reminded him that God was going to restore Israel. So he started to pray again. That was probably about 540 BC. And politically, historically, socially, economically, in terms of military power, there was no way that was going to happen because the Babylonians were still the big dominant force in the world. And then they got defeated by the Persians under the leadership of a man called Cyrus. And everything changed. Remarkable. I mean, so remarkable that it's remarkable. If you go to the British Museum today, to room 50. There's a little cylinder about two feet long, made of clay, and it's called Cyrus's Cylinder. It's one of the first forms of public announcement and language, actually. And on it is written an announcement from King Cyrus that all of the people that are in vassal kingdoms, particularly Israel, are free to return to their homeland from Babylon, and that he will pay for them to go back, and that he will pay for them to build a temple, and that he'll give them the wood and the stuff that they need and letters of transport so that they can get back safely on the condition that they pray for him. Now, that sounds rather boring to you and me, and you think, I didn't come to a dedication service to hear about King Cyrus's cylinder. Except this was a moment when God's eternal purposes transformed the history of the world. He stepped in to remove one empire and place another one um, in power so that his people who had been locked away for 70 years could get home. It's remarkable. And they went back and started the work and then stopped. And then they started again and then they stopped. And then they started again and then they stopped. And in 520 BC, between August the 23rd, if you're interested, in December the 4th, the prophet Haggai Issued four different prophetic words to these people who had stopped and, started, stopped and started, stopped and started, stopped and started, stopped and started. Zechariah talked to them too, and Haggai, God said through Haggai to these people, finish the job. <laughs> you haven't run out of money because your houses are paneled, you've got stuff. Go up, bring down the wood from Haggai chapter 1, and build. So they started, and then they stopped. And they kept doing it. That's the bit of Ezra that is dealt with in chapters 1 through 7. Ezra's story comes in in chapter 7 himself when he is called and sent by the king to do something in Jerusalem to make the job, see the job get finished. He's sent to reform the community, he's sent with a message around how to live according to the law, the Torah. The Babylonian exiled Jews were stricter than the Jews back in Jerusalem. That can happen to you when you're in exile. The people that left Ireland are far more Irish than the people that stayed. (laughs) It's always the case. And when they're sent back, Ezra begins to reform this group of people, probably, I think, personally, around 458 B.C., he precedes, I think, Nehemiah, but they overlap a little bit. And he calls them back to consecrate their lives again, to get some things sorted out, to keep their eyes on Jesus, or, or to keep their eyes on God, I beg your pardon, and to um, live out their calling. It's a really important book. And I want to talk to you about it, because I think God has... A few things to say to this congregation on this day about the same things. And they're very simple things. They're not complicated. I want you to remember that you're rooted in a longer story, that you're committed to a larger cause and you're called to a deeper life. Wasn't it great yesterday? Oh, all right. I thought it was really good. (laughs) I thought the preacher was particularly anointed. <laughs> and I loved the way Mark and the team rooted the story of this building and the story of this fellowship going all the way back to 1903 2 years after Queen Victoria died just that's a while ago but the story of this church is longer it goes all the way back to the beginning of the expression of gospel ministry in these islands. But it's longer than that. It goes all the way back to the events in Jerusalem when Christ was murdered, buried, and resurrected. But it's older than that. It goes all the way back to this story. And this story is older than this. Because it goes all the way back to the first moment when God said, let there be light and life as we understand it came into existence. It's wonderful that you're in this new building. I was thrilled and honored to be part of the dedication and thanksgiving of it yesterday. But what's more important is the story that it represents. The first thing that these people that were Hebrews, they became known as Jews, did after Cyrus sent them back was lay the foundation of the altar at the center of the temple. And with the walls still down, with the city not built, with the, uh, the, 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 the surroundings looking like a, a wilderness, they dedicated themselves in front of a dedicated foundation. They didn't have, that, they didn't have the altar built. You dedicated this building yesterday. Now today, dedicate yourselves What good is a building if it isn't filled with people who love and praise and worship God? What good is a building if you don't tell the story behind the building? This is more than just a space. This is a sacred place. And you are part of a sacred story. And Ezra reminds the people, the book of Ezra reminds us of that as they, you watch these opening phrases. And the section that um, Kathy read to us from the end of Ezra chapter 3. We read something which I think is profoundly moving. From a vert, verse 8 or 9, you hear this. When they all went back, the people began to work. You've already been beginning for 10 years. But at the end of it, as they watch as the altar is being dedicated, the foundation is being laid, we're told that those that were from an older generation were weeping and crying And those that were from a younger generation were worshiping and praising and their voices were combined into one sound as they lifted their voice to God. Not everybody rejoices when a building is built. Not everybody rejoices when a church enters a new season. Some people find it terrifying. Some people find it daunting. Some people um, always want to go back to what used to be. I wish I could have the um, intimacy of that room, or I wish I could have the story of that space, or I wish we could be the team that we used to be. I had a conversation with somebody in my own congregation um, not so long ago, and they said, I love the fact we've seen about 1,000 people become Christians in 18 months in our church. They're not all coming to our church, but 250 of them have become members, and we've baptized about 160, which is great if you don't like change. It's not so great. I had a a conversation with somebody who's loving what is happening in our church just a couple of weeks ago. And they said, I really love this. But could we just stay the same size that we were when you came? (laughs) And I said, do you love it enough to allow your your preferences to be placed in second position to what God is doing in this chapter of our story? And they said, I don't know. And I said, Well, I'm not going to force you. God knows your vulnerabilities. He knows your uncertainties. He knows your questions around it. We're introducing a new leadership structure in our church this week. I did a little video um, that was being played to our congregations today and tonight. We're introducing 76 new leaders. Yeah, that's how we feel, too. (laughs) It's a remarkably challenging season we're together in it, but it's also doing our head in. That's a theological phrase from Northern Ireland. (laughs) It's draining. It's exhausting. It's demanding. It's challenging. It feels like every two or three months we have to rediscover who we are. We try something. It doesn't work. We try something. It doesn't work. We try something. It doesn't work. We fight. We argue. You never do that. We fight. We argue. We have heated disagreements. We have Chinese meals together as leadership teams and sometimes storm out. And one person might say to the other, We're not doing this right. And the other will say, No, you have to do it this way. And then we somehow find each other, and our unity isn't broken because we're not uniform. In this season, on this day, on the 26th of January 2020, at the beginning of a new decade, in a season of new life, in a space that is fresh and full of possibility empty canvases around the walls upon which you could write the imaginary names and draw the imaginary faces of thousands of lives that could be transformed in this space. Remember, not that I want to offend you, this isn't your space. This is a space for God to do something. Please root it in a longer story. Don't let the culture tell you what that story is. Because they can't. Don't let social services tell you what that story is. Don't let education tell you what that story is. Don't let modern populism tell you what that story is. Don't let politicians tell you what the story is. Don't let a theological tradition tell you what the story is. Let God tell you what the story is. And that story goes all the way back to a moment when God created humanity, and he looked into its eyes and he said... I will make them in my image. And behind our initial brokenness, behind our initial shame, behind our initial destruction, and all that goes wrong in our lives, there is an initial God-given beauty because every person is made in his image. Root yourself in the story where everyone can be changed, where every family can receive hope, where no one is beyond the grace of God. Don't root yourself in the temporary story that tells you that there are certain categories you can reach and certain categories that you can't reach. Don't root it in the story that says you can give somebody a house, a new education, and food in their belly and you've shared the gospel. You haven't. The gospel is not simply about external transformation. In the north building and presumably the south building, or south for the moment, this may become the mid-north when you build the new one. (laughs) And <laughs> some of you are not laughing at that, are you? <laughs> what if God gave Waypoint a prophetic word and a name that you didn't even understand yourselves? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> when, you, when you are allowing yourself to be at work in, uh, in this space and you see lives that are transformed, you can build it and you can fill it with every, every single person who wants to rent the space and you'll make money to pay for it, but you might miss the point of what God wants to do in it. Think about who uses this space. Think about how you rent it out. Take the time that you're taking. Allow yourselves to think, what does God want us to do? You're not simply subcontracting the gospel. (laughs) And you can't subcontract the story. When I give somebody a cup of cold water, it has power because it's given in Jesus' name. Remember, you're part of a longer story. That means that your preferences for what it means to be Waypoint might go out of date. Take a look around you, sisters and brothers. Do take a look around you. If you're single, take a double look around you. (laughs) This could be the moment. In 70 or 80 years, there will be other bright young things. Maybe not sitting in this building, honestly, but sitting somewhere else that are part of this church if Jesus returns. Your job isn't to pass on to them your ideas. It's not to pass on this season. Your job is to pass on not just this story that you are part of. Your job is to pass on the larger story, the longer story, the story that goes back beyond us to those that have given it to us. Paul puts it this way. I pass on to you that which was passed on to me. It's called an apostolic succession or an apostolic imperative. They're going to use the phrase twice in 1 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I'm passing on to you what was given to me. And he explains to them the meaning and the significance of bread and wine and the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I'm passing on to you that which was of, and here's a phrase he doesn't use anywhere else, of primary significance to me. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and to me like one born out of due season. He roots his story. He's Jewish. And he roots the reason for his existence In the longer story of God's grace, in the powerful story of a God who is able to bring transformation, that's the long story that we root ourselves in. I'm 50 this year. I'm going to be a grandfather in five or six weeks. How did that happen? I'm looking forward to it. and I have to say to you, and I mean this genuinely, every decade of my life has been better than the last one. See this? I dread being 50. I can't wait. Every decade of my life has got better. I'm excited, but I have already made a commitment in my head and in my heart. I want to give myself as much as I can to the generation coming after me that are 30, 32, 33, 34, that generation and below, because I want them to be better leaders than me. I want them to be better preachers than me. I want them to be more faithful pastors, and I think they can be. I don't want to be that old dude. <laughs> Holy Spirit confirmation. Either that or you're just trying to make me feel at home. <laughs> I, don't <want> be, <laughs> I don't want to be that old dude. That in the last season of my life, I'm standing somewhere in a congregation and spend my life saying, oh, I wish it was like what it used to be. I remember when we used to sing songs that everybody knew. (laughs) I don't want to be that person. I want to be the person that with my dying breath, my face is aglow with the presence of God. You've met them. They're little living Duracell batteries. (laughs) And when you share something with them, they're the first people to say, try, do it, go for it, reach out, go further. And I think that that, Longer view is so important. Do you know who I have in my experience as a pastor for 34 years found the hardest people to make a move with? Not the older folk. They're the ones that are biting, champing at the bit very often. And not the very young, the people just around my age. In their 30s and 40s. Or those just behind, well, not anymore. Or those just behind them. I had a conversation. We had four children under five and a half. (laughs) And I, I was the solo pastor and we would bring the kids and try to make it work when we were preaching when I was preaching and teaching and everything else. People used to come because we had four children, bring their children and drop them off beside my wife and I say and say it's great that there's a crèche here. <laughs> we were like it's not a crèche, they're just ours. <laughs> I had a conversation recently with a young guy and he said to me, "You've no idea what it's like to have young children." I couldn't possibly be committed to more than an hour or an hour and a half a week in the life of the community of faith. I said, I think I do have an idea of what it's like to have young children. And it was a hard conversation. I said, but you're one of the chief protagonists with me that tell me that you want this community to be more meaningful. You want friendship to be deeper. You want vulnerability to be present. You want worship to be intimate. You want preaching to be connected. And you want me to get all of that into an hour a week to suit your platform and your timetable. I know some of you are going to hate what I'm going to say, particularly those of you that are in that generation. Do not make your family an idol. Nobody is forcing you to get your kids to French lessons and violin lessons and pony lessons and tutoring for the 11 plus. Nobody's forcing you into a lifestyle that requires everything else. The primary concern of the people is God of God is God and his story. And we buy into a different story that gives us short-term value and worth at the expense of the longer-term witness of the church. I'm not suggesting you should worship church, but I am suggesting that there's a better story that we find ourselves in, and to locate ourselves in it requires consecration. The first thing they did was worship God. God with their weeping and their joy, maybe this morning you can't bring him praise. Then bring him your pain. Maybe, like me, you're a stop-start person. The people of God have always been stop-start. But what if today we can stop with intentionality? and be revived by the power of the Holy Spirit consecrate your heart consecrate your life consecrate your tomorrows if you need to do some reprioritization then do it don't worry my second and third point aren't quite as long rooted in a longer story because we are committed to a larger cause. The gospel. That God could take me and change me. That he could transform us. That he could offer life and hope and mercy to women and men like you and me. We can work until the cows come home and we can yell until we're blue in the face, the only thing that can change a human heart from the inside out with lasting, significant transformation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can build all the buildings you like. You can run all the programs you want. You can have your hands and fingers in every pie from Christians Against Poverty to food banks to schools to fostering to uh, everything you can do it all and not be gospel people but the gospel the good news that god reaches out to those that are broken and offers them new life in christ and transforms them that change is not just one person for a moment it changes it changes everything be rooted in this larger story this larger cause as well as being planted in this longer story, this is all for Him. That's why I sang that song at the beginning. You are worthy of it all. The words of it are beautiful. If you aren't familiar with it, look it up on YouTube. All the saints and elders bow before this, All the saints and angels bow before the throne. All the elders cast their crowns before the throne of God and sing, "You are worthy of it all." Don't give your life for waypoint. Not worth it. Don't give your life for being a Baptist. Not worth it. Give your life for Christ. He's worth it. He's worth it. A longer story, a larger cause, and a deeper life. The second half of the book of Ezra has Ezra saying some pretty difficult things. He comes back to these people around 458, and what he sees is a temple that is built and a people that are wayward. Imagine building something that was so beautiful as this. And in 30 years, what happens in it being nothing to do with Jesus? Jesus. I could take you to buildings all over this country that were built to house three and four and five thousand people, or a thousand or nine hundred or eight hundred, and now they have sixty or seventy or eighty people sitting in a small square in the center as the dust gathers around the outside. And they tell stories of how it used to be, and they reminisce. But in their hearts, that sense of a deeper life is gone. Ezra calls these people back from uh, idol worship. He calls them back from having lost their way. He calls them back from mean-spiritedness. He calls them back from uh, their behavior and relationships that are unfaithful to what God has called them. He calls them back. And he calls them back to the God that birthed them and wants them to grow and flourish in him. I am excited about the future of Waypoint. So excited I can't wait to see what God does with it. But I ask you today, if yesterday was the consecration of a building, let today be the consecration of your hearts, of your life, of your time, of your moments, of your private, nobody else can see decisions. Let this be the moment when you say, wherever you take me, whatever you do with me, I want To proclaim in my life the greater, more beautiful story of the gospel. And I want to remember that I'm part of a tradition that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. And I want to be faithful to this. I pray that God will meet with you in the days and the weeks that lie ahead. But as we close this service, I wonder what He might want to do here and now. Maybe you're a stop starter. Like one of those new cars. I hate them. You stop at the traffic lights and you think, why isn't this car moving? And then you realize because it stopped. And then it automatically starts. You won't automatically start. You do realize, don't you, that God doesn't automatically take the center of your life. He's not automatically at the center of this gathering, He's not automatically at the center of your family. Because you signed a decision card 20 years ago doesn't mean he's at the center of your family. You've got to make those choices today. I've got to make them today. I think God wants to do some things in our gathering around consecration, around rediscovery of what he might say amongst us. And I want to pray for you. So would you mind, if you're willing and able, to close your eyes and bow your heads with me? I want to pray, Father, from the drummer behind me, all the way to the young lady in the bleachers on the stage right. That you will move by your spirit in this place. Some of us have been stop-start people. Sadness and disappointment have caused us to stop. Some of us, exhaustion has caused us to stop. Unanswered prayer disappointments. Some of us have believed the wrong story about ourselves for years. Spoken to us by leaders or teachers or parents or wives or husbands or pastors or the institutional church today we want to be rooted in your story we want to see beyond the trappings and see people as people we want our lives to make a difference some of us have lost our way In this space, at this moment, breathe your life into your children. For those that have never known you, bring them into a family of grace and mercy and kindness. For those of us who feel as if our stories cannot change, give us faith to believe that you are here. And to lay before you our lives for those of us who need to go deeper who need to lay aside our idols who need to confess our sins who need to put down those things that have become more important to you we want to meet you Lord in this space have your way the band are going to start singing a song keep your eyes closed would you? And I'm not going to ask you to come forward at this stage. But if you want to make a response to God for whatever reason here today, as they start to sing, and I'm not going to ask you twice, stand. As a symbol to God and a symbol to yourself and to those around you, I'm following where God leads. I'm consecrating myself to his service today. And we'll take it from there.